podcast was recorded on Aboriginal land, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. This episode also discusses events that occurred on the lands of the Jajarurong people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Christina. Hi, Penny. Welcome back to In Those Days. Thank you. Where we're going to talk about yesterday's news today. Excellent. One thing that I wanted to talk to you about is something that I do on Trove sometimes in is my... Is this a, a sharing thing or is this something you might regret? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. This is just another way that I enjoy Trove. Sometimes when I hear about an event or something that happened in the past, I look it up on Trove The results that you get, you can sort them by date. Okay. And so I start with the earliest and then I just read through the incident and it kind of unfolds as if it's happening. Like so you can read from the start what people knew day one and then what people knew day two. And I find that's very interesting. And I've done it with things like air races. So when they've had like a big plane race from Mm -hmm. America or Australia or something like that and – and that, that's quite fun. That's pretty cool. So you'll be going home and, and having a crack at that, will you? Look, probably not, but I support <laughs> your choice. <laughs> Hello. Today's guest is Anna Grace, who is a teacher. And we've got her today to talk about a special topic that's sort of related to teaching. Hello, Anna Grace. Hi, Penny and Christina. Hello. So my first question is, how long have you been teaching and did you always want to be a teacher? Yes, I always wanted to be a teacher, but I can't exactly remember how long I've been teaching. I I think I was in my late 20s when I started, but it took me a while to get there because I I couldn't go straight into teaching out of high school because turns out, you know how like they tell you in high school, do maths to keep your options open? Yeah. I was like, pfft. I don't need to do maths. And turns out I needed to do maths to keep my options open. So I had to finish the world's longest arts degree that I just crawled through, hating every minute of it, knowing that I actually just wanted to be teaching. I feel like I'm the opposite of people who fell into teaching after all of their other things collapsed or didn't work out. I was desperate to be a teacher, even though I actually had options to do other seemingly more exciting things. But I just, it was like a vocation, like I didn't have a choice. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. Christina is also a teacher. Mm. And so I'm the only non-teacher. Yeah. How does room. that feel, Penny? Well, third wheel. I feel <laughs> pretty much like I often feel about this, which is disappointing. Yeah. Because <laughs> both my parents are teachers. Yes. So I'm of teachers. So you've ignored your genetic calling. That's right. And you are of teachers. I am well. of two teachers too. Yeah. I was genetically blessed slash cursed. <laughs> and so did you feel it as a calling or was no, it? No, no. Like I, ran, <laughs> I ran rapidly in the opposite <laughs> direction from the call. Look, I guess a bit like how Anna Grace said, I guess I'm the opposite at the end of an art science degree with options looking a little bit limited in terms of <laughs> I'd made it in pretty weird stuff in those <laughs> degrees and suddenly a one-year dip ed seemed like a great plan. And now you're both in primary schools. You didn't start off in... No, I'm not primary trained. It's scary for me and the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm secondary trained. So I'm in a P to 12 school, but at the moment doing most of my work in primary land. I'm terrified of teenagers. As soon as they're taller than me, which is about grade five, (laughs) I'm out. What grade do you teach at the moment? At the moment I have grade two, three. Nice. Yeah. See, I am also scared of teenagers, but I'm not more scared of them now than I was when I was one. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've always been scared of them. See, I'm scared of them when they're small. It's much safer with teenagers. At least they'll tell you what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly will. Yeah. Anna Grace, how much do you use Trove? Professionally or in any part of any, life? How much? Well, a lot. Constantly. <laughs> um, well, I use it obviously constantly in my degree because yep. it, it existed when I was studying arts and my major was in history. And then I did a lot of cinema studies and classics and stuff like that. So I was using Trove a lot. I use it a lot at, at work for primary sources because it's fantastic. Yes. And teach the kids how to use it and how to understand what's a good primary source. And yes, getting the stuff. kiddies in. This yeah. is what we need. Yeah, it's great. They think it's fantastic mm. because it's. I'll let them do it somewhat unsupervised. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can get in a lot less trouble. <laughs> and I also just use it, I've used it a lot for family history stuff, like my mum's a historian and so she's interested in family history, always looking stuff up. But I'm also just like a nerd who when I hear something on the news, I'm like, oh, okay, what's that? Or when I, like if just something takes my interest in terms of, oh, someone will say, oh, did you hear, have you heard about the Easy Street murders or something? Uh, and I'll just yeah. be like, okay, now I've got to look it up. Yeah. And that was probably a really mm. grim example. But sometimes it can be not creepy things, but I do just <laughs> like investigating stuff and finding out things. And you can often get stuff on Trove that's so unfiltered. Yes. Be- it's not gone through a historian no. already. No. And the way that they used to write sometimes in old newspapers, they didn't beat around the bush. So yeah. you can get some pretty <laughs> amazing <laughs> no stuff. I completely agree. And the topic that we're going to be talking about today is something that you and I talked about at book club and I yeah. realised that you had this interest in. <laughs> and it's the Faraday kidnappings, which is a very famous event in Australian history. Now, I grew up in the Castlemaine district. Faraday is a little town just outside of Castlemaine and I grew up in a town on the other side of it. My knowledge of this was just every time we went through Faraday... My parents in the car would just just say something to each other. So I kind of knew that hmm. a kidnapping had happened there. But they never gave me any details and I actually always assumed it was a long time ago. Like I thought it was in the bush range mm. days, right? It was actually in the early 1970s. So my parents can remember it happening. And so the thing about this topic is a lot of the people involved are still alive, and have moved on with their lives and done other things, but it's still a very traumatic thing that mm. happened. And any, everyone involved was very young. So that's something that, like, I kind of want to be aware of when we're talking about this. Often we're talking about things that happened a very long time ago and everyone's dead. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So it's a bit it's a bit different this week. And, Christina, have, had you heard about this? I had. I, I wasn't super familiar with it, but I definitely had an awareness and I went off and did a little bit of reading before today, which is unusual for me. I'm usually quite disorganised. So. Where do you think your awareness came from? Mm. Like, Because mo- most people in our age group haven't heard of it, yeah. I've found, unless they were maybe from a rural area. I think it had been mentioned at home when I was a kid. Maybe being of teachers. Being of teachers, <laughs> from teachers' loins. Um, I do think it, it was discussed and I think like you, we definitely went through that area at some point on a road trip and Dad mentioned something in the car. So mm. I may not have paid a lot of attention because um, Dad also liked to point out geological features and so <laughs> Oh, yeah. The Yu Yangs? Yeah. yeah I was always getting the Yu Yangs. Yeah, yeah. The anticlinal yeah. folds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how did it cross your radar? Well, I feel like maybe it was hidden from me. 
because I am of a teacher, but I'm the nervous type and also the obsessive type. So I right. feel like perhaps there was a conspiracy around me to protect me from hearing about it. And so the first time that I heard about it was exactly where you want to hear about it, which is at a meeting of school parents where we're discussing <laughs> where we're taking their grade mm. one and two children on an overnight camp mm. where they're going to sleep in tents in the middle of Gippsland. And someone says, oh, how come your school has access to this campground? So my deputy principal wasted no time in just letting the parents know that, well, these rural schools have closed down in the 70s and in the 80s and some of them were sort of gifted back to underprivileged city schools. So they had a withdrawal place, like they could take the kids. And my school at the time had a lot of migrant and refugee families and kids who'd never been to rural Australia. So they gifted the school or possibly the school paid or they rented or whatever, this school site in Gippsland that had been a tiny single room schoolhouse. And he said, of course, you know, over time they've closed these schools down because of all the kidnappings. And there was just (laughs) dead silence in the room. And the teachers, Mm. we were looking at each other like, did you know this? And everyone's like, no. You know, he was like, well, obviously, you know, There were some prominent kidnappings, as you're probably aware of, and it was, you know, I I don't think that was the only reason that that rural schools closed (laughs) down, but they were Mm. quite unsafe because you were vulnerable and you were very, very isolated. And again, the parents' faces, that is, it remains the place where I take my class on an overnight camp where we sleep in tents, (sighs) wind, hail or shine, (laughs) and it's usually hail. Sounds great. Um, Yeah, it's (laughs) horrific. Terrific. I'm not a natural camper, but it definitely knowing that when I take the kids to that camp, when you're there in the middle of the night in the tents in the dark, and it's this little falling down single room schoolhouse that basically hasn't been touched since the 70s or 80s. Very basics have been done to maintain it, but it's still pretty rough and ready. And it's so quiet and you're in the middle of nowhere. And this is just like in the middle of Gippsland. It's not even a town because the, there's nothing there. Mm you do get this incredible sense of what it must have been like to work at, in those schools, already isolated and quite challenging, and then add in this extra level of fear that I suppose must have emerged in the oh, 70s. And I just think, oh, so my gosh. Terrible. Because this is the thing. There were so many of these single-room, single-teacher schools all around Victoria and I assume all around Australia as well, which – now seems very odd. This Faraday kidnapping story is so famous. There's been films and books and... Oh, it's significantly an episode of Blue things. Healers. I realised oh. when I heard the story, I was like, hang on, that was an episode of Blue Healers <laughs> where the young female constable dash and gets, <laughs> gets kidnapped with the school bus. I think like her brother's oh. a teacher or something. You All know. these representations. And I actually listened to an American podcast <laughs> recently, two teachers talking about the Faraday School. Oh, because they had the Chowchilla kidnappings, oh, which was very okay. similar. Well, yeah, well, but they could not get their head around <laughs> the idea that we had these single room mm. It is bizarre. Yes. And with the teacher expected to teach all these grades. So you could do, I reckon, the Faraday kidnappings and what happened afterwards could be a whole podcast series. We will be looking at it a little bit superficially and through a particular lens today. I really want to get Christina and Anna Grace's perspectives as teachers, but then also it's going to be a trove perspective. So we're going to look at the articles from the time. Mm -hmm. Usually in trove, after the 1950s, not so good because that's when the digitisation generally goes up to, except this was such a national story that it was in the Canberra Times. Canberra Times is not the world's most sensationalist 
newspaper. So at the time, every paper would have been covering this story and some of them would have been really salacious and whatever. But even through the fairly moderate lens of the Canberra Times, this is a very wild story. So, (laughs) And I'm just going to say at the start, no one dies. I feel like in a way that has probably led to it almost becoming more of a joke or a, an eye roll or a giggle than when you think about the reality of it. Exactly. Like, yeah, like I was... It was certainly not a full no. conversation. It, could, it was a very dangerous situation. It's just an absolute loose cannon. Okay, so this is from the Canberra Times, which was printed on the Saturday morning on the 7th of October 1972. And it's the first article about the incident. One million demand for teacher, six pupils. Melbourne Friday. Six young schoolgirls and their 20-year-old teacher were kidnapped from their school near Castlemaine this afternoon. Now, that's the first thing that I think is amazing, (laughs) that this teacher was 20 years old and by herself in the classroom. So you were in your late 20s when you became a teacher? Look, it's a bit fuzzy, to be honest. But when (laughs) I was 20, I did have a huge amount of responsibility, probably more than I do now. What role did you have? Well, I... As I was sluggishly making my way miserably <laughs> through my arts degree, I worked out I wanted to be a teacher. I sort of ended up accidentally forming this non-profit organisation, which still exists. You formed a non-profit organisation. It was, it was the folly of like extreme youth and just having no really not much fear because you're young. It's, so it's called the Sale Program and it is a like a literacy and community support program program for the Sudanese community in Melbourne, which at the time was a very, very new, newly yeah, emerging yeah. community. Yeah, I was 19 and a friend and I formed that together and it snowballed really quickly because community was growing really, really quickly. And then I also went and worked overseas in Southern Africa. And so I remember turning 21 in, when I was working in Southern Africa and it was the, the AIDS pandemic was still going. Mm. It was, they hadn't, uh, Communities didn't have access to any of the drugs to treat it yet and so I was working in the middle of that situation. I, there's no way I could do either of those things now. Like I'm too tired. Mm-hmm. But for a start, <laughs> I think I definitely can relate to that element of the story of it's easier in some ways to go through that stuff when you're 20 and you haven't really got as much of a sense of how dangerous the world could be or I don't know what it is. Your brain just protects you, right? Like isn't that when people go and jump out of planes and Mm. do all kinds of exciting adventures? But what it definitely taught me is I don't like that much responsibility. (laughs) Feeling completely (laughs) responsible for people's children it's it's much harder now that you have an understanding of like you're older and it's like oh my god that's the most important thing in someone's life yeah. whereas when you're 20 you're like ah get in the car kids you know <laughs> like you just don't overthink it so uh, I'm helping yeah. yeah so I had more responsibility then than I do now by choice because I never wanted to be in charge of anything ever again <laughs> ever oh yeah and what about you, Christina? You'd be more like me. I was yeah. just mucking around in Melbourne. Yeah, I was mucking around, a lot of a lot of hovering around theatres. <laughs> That's what I wish I'd been doing. Of, you might have been a bit older. What, what, how old were you when you um, I directed te- the Law Review? Oh, look, too young to be sensible. Oh, my God, the very, Law Review. We all wanted to be in that. I was very driven by the cash payment for the director but heavily involved with a lot of theatre stuff loosely doing academic stuff in the background (laughs) as my two degrees and I ended up teaching, I think I started about 24, 25 at a fairly lawless school. You know, you could literally do whatever. I went into the principal one day and said, oh, you know, my group of year nines, that's really hard to engage. I thought maybe on a Wednesday afternoon I could take them to Chadston in the minibus. (laughs) (laughs) 
and he's like, yeah, just do it each week. So that. Like, oh, my gosh. Now it would be like, here are the 27 yeah. forms. Have you done the risk We never signed Where's anything. Where's your hive is. I yeah. just used to dismiss them from Chadston. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> like, Yeah, it's incredible thinking about those single room schoolhouses. They wouldn't have had nearly as much bureaucracy to wage no. every time. Well, that is interesting. Whereas now I'm the person that checks over all the forms to make sure that everything is ticked off. Yeah, now I'm like, I'm the one who's like, have you done it? Or do you want to be the one standing at the inquest? Do you? Do you? Do it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Do you want to be in a courtroom? Because I don't want to be. (laughs) It'll be my head on the chopping block if you haven't done it. What a fun person I am. Okay, (laughs) so the article goes on. The kidnapper left a ransom note demanding one million in cash. So that's in 1972. That's a shitload of money. Yeah, still a decent sum today. I'd be happy to. I'd walk be happy away with, with a million. <laughs> I mean, let's not get ideas. And it is much harder to kidnap people mm. these days, everyone. Okay, but it's over 12 million dollars now. So I did the conversion. Anyway, the Victorian Premier, Mr. Hamer, announced tonight he would go to Castlemaine to direct the police hunt. The girls aged 5 to 11 and their teacher, Miss Mary Gibbs of Bendigo, she is our hero, she's a legend, were taken from Faraday School on the Calder Highway, 70 miles northwest of Melbourne. It is thought they were kidnapped during their music lesson about 2.30pm. You can't hear anything over recorders. <laughs> Apparently they were playing musical chairs. Is that true? And I, yeah, I, I believe so. And I, I think it's a real shame that it had to happen during the bludge lesson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is unfair. Yeah, it should have been during smelling oh or something. God. Yeah. No, like anyone who's ever tried to wrangle a group of children in a music lesson is anything but a bludge. But it was obviously a, a tiny school. And so Mary Gibbs was teaching them everything. She was the music teacher, she was yeah. the sport teacher, she was maths, science, ev- English, everything. Do you. Anna Grace have to teach specialists at all these days? Yeah, over the years, depending on which specialists the school might have employed, I think I've taught a bit of everything. So for the most part, my school hasn't had a PE teacher. So I've taught most of the PE (laughs) and stopped laughing. Um, Does that come naturally to you? I don't know. It didn't, but like with, with not being good at maths, it turns out I really don't like to be defeated. So I was on the F's netball team, A, B, C, D, E, F. No, I think I was on the G's actually. <laughs> like I was so bad at, at all ball sports. Mm. And I got our way with teaching PE my first year. We just did a lot of dancing. But then I, I found this one book on how to teach PE. And I know that only like a nerd like humanities person would teach PE from a book, but it had everything in it. It was like, this is how you kick. You step with this foot. You raise your, put the knee here, whatever. And I just used that book for about 10 years to teach PE until we finally got a PE teacher this year. I actually loved it. Like I I got quite good at teaching PE just through sheer determination. Every now and then one of the boys was really good at kicking would be like, (laughs) you're getting that from that book again? And I was like, shut up. And one time the book went missing and the whole kids were searching the whole school. Find my PE book. Um, So, yes, I think I've taught every specialist along the way, especially when you – I've done some emergency teaching Mm. and like they'll just put you in Italian. I don't don't speak Italian. That's all right. It's fine. Just figure it out. What about you if you've taught – I think primary school teaching is jack of all trades. Yeah. You have to have a bit yeah. of everything and you pulling things constantly out of mm. your grab bag of tricks. Whereas if like high school you can specialise a little bit more but then you've had to you've had to diversify your year level. Yeah, so teaching in secondary, my actual methods are English and biology. Oh, wow, um, you're very employable. So employable. <laughs> 
However, if you are a biology teacher, that also means that you teach general science. Mm -hmm. Not a fan. Do not enjoy. Don't ask me how to balance a chemical equation. I did an entire science degree without coming out with that as Mm. part of my toolkit. What about all those physics Mm. things that I don't understand, like waves? I can do, I can teach that, but I have to relearn it every time. Yeah, Yeah, like me with the kicking. Yeah. (laughs) Every time. But then I discovered because at one point I had multiple year 12 and year 11 English classes and my, oh my God. marking load was so extreme, I started to have a bit of a think and I suggested that I could also take some drama classes, which I rapidly nice. got. Yeah. And that was the best form of assessment ever because kids would present their performance. You go, well done, guys, eight out of ten. <laughs> Finished. <laughs> don't have to you don't have that. to do it at home. No. I don't have a parent who can bring that as a in as a reference. Like, well, you weren't there. You didn't see the performance. It was <laughs> Did everyone get eight? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, guys. But I have had to teach maths. I was told it would be for two weeks. It was for three and a half terms. Oh, that was wow. year ten That's maths. Year was, ten maths is tricky as That's well. A, it was. I don't want to put more pressure on you, but that is an important year of maths. Tough time. So I'll continue with the article. The children are Christine Ellery, 10, of Calder Highway, Faraday, Linda Ellison, Con, 9, and her sister Helen Myra, 6, of Sutton Grange Road, Faraday, Robin Elizabeth Howarth, 11, and her sisters Gillian Michelle, 8, and Denise Kay, 5. It's nice that we've identified the victims. Yes. Very specifically... And I'm assuming feel free to visit at some point there'll be a photo. (laughs) Like we say, everyone's going to be safe at the end and they they do have a lovely Mm. photo all together. But that's a big change, isn't it, in terms of the way that we talk about children who have been involved in crime. I suppose it was public interest or something at the time to know who everybody was. Yeah, I don't know why they had to say where they live. <laughs> um, like, I guess if kids are missing, maybe knowing their name yeah, is yeah. relevant because at this yeah, point true. they are all missing. So true. maybe that's important. I think there's been a very big mm. change. I do think it's interesting now because I've been on the other side where we've had we've reported children missing several times at our school and it's amazing to watch how rapidly things start to happen. When you sort of look at what can happen in that space now compared to back then, mm. you know, we've come an awfully long way. Well, there seems to be so many stops along the way with these kidnapping stories where, of course, there's no phone, there's no radio, there's no anything. And that's just mind blowing. Like when you were saying before, this couldn't happen now. Mm. Like it mm. you know, just couldn't. And four other pupils who attended the school, two boys and two girls, were away with influenza. So that's two-fifths of the class of 10 was away, which seems about right. Yeah. The ransom note, which was left on a desk in the classroom, demanded that 500,000 in 520 notes be placed in three suitcases and the other half million in $10 notes to be put in six suitcases. And at this point, it does feel a little bit like the teacher was just trying to make maths a bit more fun. Yeah, it does sound like a maths problem. How many $10 notes will be in each of the six briefcases? And the note added, delivery will be arranged. We'll contact Lindsay Thompson, the Victorian Minister for Education at Police Headquarters at 7.25pm. We'll not waste time making threats, but any attempt to apprehend will result in annihilation of hostages. Yeah, it was serious. They were really threatening the people who they kidnapped. 
Mr Thompson arrived at Russell Street Police Headquarters about 7pm. The Premier was also called in. They, with the Deputy Commissioner, Mr A.L. Carmichael, and Assistant Commissioner Operations, Mrs. Mr. S.I. Miller, discussed the terms of the ransom note, but the kidnapper did not call. The question of raising the $1 million ransom was discussed. Late tonight, Mr. Thompson and police officers were still waiting for any word from the kidnapper. It's kind of a little bit weird. They're kind of just waiting. Mm. They're, they're prepared almost to pay the ransom. But these guys never didn't get in touch. Yeah, I can't. I can't understand that. And then what happened was first news of kidnapping came in a telephone call to a Melbourne newspaper at about four forty. The caller, a man, spoke to his Sun News Pictorial Police roundsman, Wayne Grant, and said, "I'll say this only once: I have kidnapped all pupils and the teacher from Faraday State School. The ransom is one million. The details are in a note in one of the front desks." And Mr Grant said the man was Australian and sounded about 20. He spoke in a high-pitched voice and did not sound nervous. So, I, sorry, I should do that again. I'll only say this one, <laughs> right? I'm That's kidnapped. the weirdest description. <laughs> I read that description too and just was like, what? And when told of the call, Castlemaine Police said they had been notified only 10 minutes earlier that the children and Miss Gibbs were missing. The three mothers of the children had arrived at the school at 3.30 to pick up their children up. They became alarmed when the children had not come out at 3.50, which to me as a parent now is quite a long time. Like they kick them out pretty yeah. fast now at Absolutely. and they're out the door. <laughs> I feel so, so sorry for those parents. Like I can't imagine. I'm not a parent but I just can't imagine yeah, what they must have gone through that night. It would have been incredibly horrible. Okay. Mrs. Thelma Conn said she and Mrs. Howarth and Mrs. Ellery went into the school. We thought the children and Miss Gibbs were probably out walking, but after we had searched around nearby roads, we got worried and phoned our husbands, she said. Uh, once again, that probably wouldn't happen these days if I got to the school <laughs> and the kids weren't there. I probably wouldn't be like, oh, they must be out walking. No. They might have been at Chadston. Yes. <laughs> yes, with their teacher that didn't fill out any paperwork. <laughs> Tonight, friends were comforting the distressed parents. And I think that's also a really interesting thing at this time. The support that people would have got afterwards would have just only been from the community and their friends. Yeah. Because if we have a significant event, you get significant support from, well, they say significant support. You get get some um, support sent out um, in terms of psychs and, and teams that can debrief with staff and students. But probably not in in this instance. No. It's almost impossible to believe what's happened, Mr Jock Conn, 37, said outside the school. All we can do, I suppose, is wait and hope. Mr Rex Howarth, 40, said only an animal would do this to six innocent little girls. He and other parents said the only comfort they had was the knowledge that Miss Gibbs was with the children. She is a very conscientious and sensible woman, Mr Howarth said. She would only do what she thought best for the children. Miss Gibbs had been at the school since Easter. Well, it's a lot of faith to put in a 20-year-old. It is, but she obviously yeah. had made a very good impression in just the six months that she'd been there. Late tonight, the three fathers waited anxiously outside the school for news from the kidnapper. The police search and rescue squad arrived in Castlemaine late tonight to join police in the hunt. Detectives called in from Ballarat and Bendigo joined more than 20 other police in a search of empty buildings and houses around the Castlemaine and Faraday areas. 
In Melbourne, Mr Miller said he could not say what had been decided at the conference earlier tonight. Every move is critical with the lives of seven people at stake, Mr Miller said. At this stage, it's a matter of sitting and waiting. I think what that's referring to is that they hadn't decided what to do about the ransom mm. and paying, trying to pay them, guys. The school, an old granite rock building, is situated about 30 yards off the Calder Highway. Everything inside the school appeared normal. Miss Gibbs's Tirana sedan was still parked outside the school. Her coat was lying on the back seat, which I find a really evocative image. Because mm. it's not necessarily going to be warm out in the Australian bush. No. Well, it was in October, so it would still be cold at mm. night. Okay, so at this point, that's the end of the article, and at this point the kids and the teachers are missing, the kidnappers are at large. And they've actually managed to get this article printed and out in time. Like, Yeah, this quickly. is Saturday, yeah. Saturday morning, so it happened Friday afternoon. Yeah, right. They've moved it around. The next one is from Monday the 9th of October 1972. Melbourne Sunday. More than 400 police, most of them armed, were still searching tonight for two men who on Friday kidnapped six schoolgirls and their teacher and demanded one million for their safe return. So now we know it was two men. It wasn't one kidnapper. Yeah. The children, aged between five and ten years, and their teacher, Miss Mary Gibbs, 19, were forced at gunpoint from their one yeah, room. She's 19 now. Yeah, I know. Sometimes she's 19, sometimes <laughs> right. she's 20. Yeah. I don't know if she had a birthday coming yeah. up. It's, <laughs> it's confusing. From their one-room bush school at Faraday, 70 miles north of Melbourne, and locked in the back of a former baker's van. After 15 hours, in which time they had been released briefly for exercise, Miss Gibbs kicked a panel out of the back of the van at dawn and escaped with the children through bush country, where they had been left about 12 miles north of Lansfield. There was no sign of the kidnappers. She kicked her way out of the van. Impressive. That's definitely the the defining anecdote. When you and I were talking about this, at book club, yeah. I was like, "Oh, do you know the story? She kicked, she kicked, she kicked out the back of the van with the platform-heeled boots on, or whatever, because that was just such an iconic image." She was very short, apparently. Yeah, five foot. So she needed the boots just to give herself yeah. that little. And like, what? How because sensible the kids would be getting taller than her. Like I said, that makes you very <laughs> uneasy. Whatever you need. Mm. So wow. what do you? What, like, guys, what are you wearing when you're teaching? I'm always wearing my kicks. Like I have about. 20 different pairs of sneakers and I like to be practical and that way if they get PVA glue on them I can just wipe it off. <laughs> I'm very mistrusting of primary school teachers who wear fancy high-heeled like open-toed little pumps and stuff. I'm like you are not in a position to get down on the floor and play a maths game. I just if and if let alone kick down a van door. Yeah <laughs> but people most teachers do wear quite fancy clothes and shoes. Like I feel like I'm sort of usually in the minority. And when I, yeah, I always just think you're not serious about your job. (laughs) Can you step among the bodies of heads down, thumbs up with those shoes on? (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Cassandra? Because you're in a slightly different position because you are an assistant principal. I'm an assistant principal. I do wear flat shoes 99% of the time. If I've got heels on, someone really important is coming and I've... Yes, definitely. When I <laughs> yes. see our AP wearing a tie, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's that day. Yeah. <laughs> so our, our principal's a bit old school. He will give a slight and I expect everyone to be suited and booted. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, gosh, Nemo, amazing. Which um, I always amazing. find quite amusing. But 
you know, he he himself will be definitely suited and booted. So I guess the rest of us fall into line. Leading by example. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know. It's definitely different, different when you're in the leadership position. Yeah. But I will always have sensible shoes under my desk <laughs> because you never know when you get a small person going on tour yeah, and you right. have to follow at high speed. So I also feel like the kids look at your feet pretty much all day. Like I like to wear colourful and interesting and different kinds of sneakers because they spend a lot of time looking at them. And yeah, they do. Pretty boring. Like I remember quite vividly my teacher's mm. feet as a child, mm. all the different teachers. And so sometimes a little kid will say to me, you have a lot of sneakers. Okay. Miss Gibbs led the children until they came on a party of rabbit shooters who took them to the police station at Lansfield. Miss Gibbs told police the men had taken her driver's licence and about $9. Wow. <laughs> Which is a lot less than the million they were hoping for. Yeah. I love that detail about the party of rabbiters. Like there's just something very CJ Dennessy about like you've come upon the rabbitos. <laughs> <laughs> like that could my dad could have been uh, yeah. could have been part of that at that time in his life probably. Officially, police have said they do not know why the kidnappers had left their hostages or why they did not attempt to collect the ransom which the Victorian government had made available. Wow. I feel like they just really... Sounds like the government was disappointed. They wanted to hand it over. The Minister for Education was on site, hiding under a blanket in the back of the car. No, I think he had the money. He had the stuff because they mm, ready to him give it to them. was under the blanket. Was under the blanket. But he was very personally brave. Yeah, and involved. Yeah. I can't imagine. Who's the Minister for Education now? Matt Victoria? Hutchings. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I can't say. Well, I, I just would feel pretty bad for her if... Would still be expected. She's also Minister for Women, I think. So anyway. That's a big job. Yeah, huge. Doing both. Anyway. A bit of a grab bag of portfolio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but police sources said today they thought the men had panicked when they realised that an army exercise was going on in the area. Ah. Which I think was a completely different thing and maybe they just... They heard gunshots Yeah, because ah, it didn't make any sense why they wouldn't front up to get the stuff. Yeah. No. I think they might have also later claimed that it wasn't them who made the call. They're definitely erratic and c- confused in their thinking, right? Like, mm. I don't know if you get a s- super sane ransomer. <laughs> well, you do sometimes in the sense that sometimes they, people do these plots, like I've mainly from other podcasts, I've heard, yeah. you know, stories where they're mm. very elaborately designed yeah. Yeah. things where it, this seems to be like they got the van, they got the kids and the teacher and then they did Then they like, panicked and didn't know what, know to, what do. to do. They hadn't thought through the next bit. Police said they were looking for two young men in a white 1960 or 1961 FB or EK Holden sedan with a blue or possibly maroon flash on the tail. Police said... I like this bit. Police said the men had apologised to Miss Gibbs for the smell of the car <laughs> and had said they had been living in it. Why apologise for the smell of the car? Don't That's not the so main issue. So you're taking your freedom and personal <laughs> liberty on the car stinks a bit too. It's like it reminds me of, you know, when someone gets in your car and you're like, oh, sorry, yeah, about, sorry, sorry about that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Police have issued identikit pictures of the two men and a photostat copy of the ransom note, which had threatened annihilation of the victims unless some money was paid. The pictures were compiled after Miss Gibbs had spent hours at Russell Street Police Headquarters in Melbourne sifting through photographs of criminals. Police will not say if they know the identities of the men. 
Senior Constable A. Anderson, officer in charge of the Lanceville Police Station, who found the van, said, If the girls had not got out of the van and the kidnappers left them, they would not have been found for weeks. I think they would have died. In my opinion, the kidnappers got the wind up and abandoned them. The Victorian Minister for Education, Mr Thompson, who had gone to Woodend about halfway between Melbourne and Faraday with three suitcases containing one million in notes, said later in Lansfield, I will recommend Miss Gibbs for an award. The release of the children is very largely due to the presence of mind of the teacher. She showed extraordinary courage, which I think basically everyone in the world agrees with. Absolutely. At 4am on Saturday, police at Russell Street had received a call from a man asking for the ransom money to be left on the steps of the post office at Wood End. Ten minutes before the money was due to be left there, another call had been received from the same man who said his earlier call was a hoax. He had said that as children were involved, he did not want anything to do with it. I don't understand whether it was... It's very odd. And this is the thing. This is where – because I'm not an expert on the subject. I have read these Trove articles and basically nothing else. There's going to be quite a few complexities and things. I'm sure someone who's an expert on the Faraday kidnappings knows – Well, they went to prison for it. Yeah. They were obviously able to – Well, they definitely left a note. They definitely took the kids and Mm. left a note in the school Mm. saying that they wanted a ransom. Whether they made this phone call or not, I don't in a way care. Like, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You've done the wrong thing. On the same page of the paper, there's a separate article that's about the reactions of the kids. Robin Howarth, 10, one of the kidnapped school children, said today, there may have been a tear or two shed by some of the girls, but if they did, they kept it to themselves. <laughs> oh, yes. God. Good. Tough upper lip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was stoic. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody cried. Well, nobody saw a counsellor. <laughs> nope. No one was debriefed. No. No one was encouraged to write some notes in their journal about <laughs> yeah. that. Or a poem or draw a picture yeah. about their feelings. I do like the story that Mary Gibbs took the tape recorder from her classroom because they've been in a music class and she thought, well, we're going to have to do something if they're kidnapping us. So they, <laughs> she took the letter. tape recorder and they sang to pass the time. And I do just like love that resourcefulness. Like I've definitely been in situations as a teacher where you're just thinking, what are we going to do to stop X happening with, you know, to stop this whole thing falling apart and you have these tricks in your back pocket like games you can play with no equipment and definitely singing like lots of singing that we have to do on school camp because there's lots of long drives to these very remote <laughs> locations <laughs> where help would be far away <laughs> um and but I do think that's pretty amazing I don't know how she convinced them or if they really noticed in the American podcast that I listened to about it, which is my only other source of information, they were saying that she kind of tried to make it as yeah. much like a lesson as possible. Yeah, yeah, she treated it like a game. It's a yeah. role play. Yeah. I yeah, I don't think I'd be able to do that. I know that I've been told to do that, like when you do a fire drill or something, pretend it's a game, but I don't. Like it's always really hard doing shelter-in-place drills because mm. you, especially with really young children, so that one I've managed to come up with a really good way of, I just say that in some rural schools you get a kangaroo in the yard. So we call it kangaroo in the yard practice and that's so far no one's questioned <laughs> me. 
But there was one kid who was about to move to the country and then she started crying because she's like, is the kangaroo going to come <laughs> in the yard? And this is the problem, isn't it? Sometimes you try and like help kids with anxieties and yeah. then accidentally yeah. <laughs> yeah. just trigger yeah. them off. That's most of the time I just am honest, but then shelter in place. It's very – I think that's very difficult because we did not do those Mm-mm. in my – and I only realised with my kids mm. when they told me once that they had – Most parents have no idea. They said they had a fire drill mm. and I was like, oh, so you all went outside and assembled on the oval and and she said oh no no we all stayed in the classroom and I was like oh that's not a most parents I think have no idea has your school gone into a real lockdown at all Um, not my school but I've been at other schools Mm. that have yes certainly and it's what about your school usually yeah about a (laughs) monthly event (laughs) like unpredictable behavior is the big reason like Mm. a parent could be a student could just be someone in the local area we've had a few of those the biggest reason usually is that a child can't be located in the school grounds and the easiest way to find them is to pull everyone else in for a lockdown Mm. so that you know exactly where they are and then Mm. they can send the therapy dog and and whoever's in charge of that you know, out to coax the kid back in from usually whatever, like, tree log or something they've killed up on. So we've definitely seen that one. Mm. The school that my kids go to, um, when there was an incident once, the teachers must have done an amazing job because my kids did not even really realise that anything had happened. Yeah. At the end of that week, I, I said to them, oh, so what was school like this week? What what, what was, you know, what happened? And, and they were, oh, my God, such a big week. Oh, such, oh, it was dry. And I was like, what, 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 what was it? And they go, there was a fox in the school. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they and they, all they <laughs> talked about was this fox in the school. Uh, that was it a real fox or was it a... It was a real oh. fox, but that was not the real incident that uh, occurred. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> there was actually something else happened. The teachers yeah. must have done a really good job. There was actually, I'm remembering now this one time where it was the last day of term and there was a lockdown called before we really knew, before protocols had been sorted out, like this is probably going back a long way and I'm at a very upper middle class school area and it was as parents were picking kids up so they got pulled into the classrooms but no one was really sure what was going on and I just have this vivid memory of one parent after another just going, is it okay if we just take him because we're just going to Nusa <laughs> and like... And, and one mum was like, um, yeah, we're going to the Cook Islands. Can I just take her? And I was like, I mean, sure, sure, take her. That's fine. Could be could be anything happening out yeah. there. Um, definitely things have tightened up since then, but I just have this vivid just memory. Yeah, yeah. And I remember putting Rugrats on. I was like, well, I suppose we'll just put Rugrats on. And someone else had out their guitar. And it was just like all these annoyed parents who want to get to Tullamarine to catch their plane. <laughs> Oh, that is so funny. We are very lucky in Australia and I constantly think about how lucky we are and I'm super grateful for our gun control laws that we just don't live with that on top of everything else that you're managing as a teacher. (laughs) Okay, so this article continues. The kidnappers had told them they would come to harm if they tried to escape. We were terrified, said Robin, who will be 11 on Friday. Horrible thoughts kept flashing through my mind. I just did not know what they would do to us. I kept wondering if I would ever see Mummy and Daddy again. And I read that bit just so that, like, mm. we keep in mind oh that. God. Like, they were genuinely, yeah. yes, it turns That's out okay in the end, but they did not know that it was going to, and they scary. were terrified. No, I was just, like, fully tearing up every time I read about this, without a doubt. It's mm. just super upsetting. Robin said that throughout their hour-long drive to the hiding spot in Thick Forest, about 12 miles north of Lansfield, the kidnappers kept laughing and talking about the money they were going to get. Nine dollars. They forgot to go and pick up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. That's funny. It's good that they didn't get that. 
Mr. Rex Howarth, father of the three Howarth girls, said he hoped the Faraday School would be closed. I don't think the school will open on Monday, he said. I think they will be sent to another school where there are more teachers. I don't want this sort of thing to happen again. Mm. Which he wasn't deliberately doing but does feel like foreshadowing to me. It really (laughs) does. Police would not allow press interviews with Miss Gibbs because she will be a witness in a very serious case. Mrs. Patricia Hayward of Melbourne, one of the rabbit hunting party. <laughs> wait, wait, what? So there was a female rabbit oak? Yeah. I oh, yeah. love it. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Pat Hayward of Melbourne. So weird. She's come down to Lansfield mm. for a bit yeah, of shooting. Okay. <laughs> said that as they drove to Lansfield, Miss Gibbs had told them. So she's like a source. Miss Gibbs is not allowed to tell mm. us this herself, mm. but we can get it through Pat. They came into the schoolroom carrying a sawn-off shotgun. There were two of them. The children thought it was a practical joke and began to (laughs) laugh. (laughs) Then one of the men said, you are all coming with us. You are being kidnapped. Sorry, I shouldn't have read that like that. That was (laughs) had a bit of a big ears and naughty (laughs) vibe. They put us in the back of the red van and drove us straight to the place where they left us for the night. She had said that about 2am on Saturday, the men had said they were going to collect the money. They said they would be gone for about three hours and they would be back at dawn, she said. When they didn't come back by dawn, I thought it was now or never and began kicking the door in with the two eldest girls. Mrs Hayward was in a car with another woman while her husband and another man were shooting rabbits. Okay, right. stand down. She's not <laughs> shooting the rabbits herself. But she went along. She took a thermos. <laughs> I've been left in the car for a few kind of things. <laughs> My dad was always taking me places and leaving me in the car. Not to pubs or anything. Um, I feel like I now need Did to defend you always dad. have a book with you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because nowadays you can just scroll your phone, but like yeah. in our youth, we always yeah, had to have a babysitter's yeah. club super special. There was one time Dad used to umpire at the footy and um, one time I went with him, like just country footy, I stayed in the car and I was in the back of the car and then this man came over to the car and like leaned in the front window and what? took Dad's smokes from the front seat. <laughs> I just sat there and he went away. And then when Dad get back, he's like, oh, where are my smokes? And I'm like, oh, a man came and took them. I thought he was your friend. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it was a different time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but I can remember sitting in the car in the bush when, like, Dad was, like, collecting firewood or fishing or something. I actually quite like fishing as well, so. I don't reckon I ever got left in the car because I had an over-pampered inner-city child. <laughs> so my parents had to sit in the car while I went to ballet and gymnastics mm-hmm. and interpretive dance class and everything. So oh. Yeah, my parents sat in the car yeah. while I did horse riding yeah. and oh, failed to look shocker. up at <laughs> key moments of my <laughs> outstanding skill displays. <laughs> did you see me do that jump? Oh, no, you're just drinking your coffee and doing your marking. <laughs> They stayed in the car so they didn't get muddy. <laughs> <laughs> she said that Miss Gibbs had said they heard the shooting and thought we were the kidnappers. So that oh. would have been a really terrifying yeah, hearing. Oh, gosh. To be hearing the gunshots yeah. and, and not being sure who it was. Miss Gibbs had said they hid until they saw Mrs Hayward and the other woman get out of the car and then ran from behind trees and told them who they were. Imagine the relief of seeing the, oh, the women. You wow. just yes, like. totally. These are the descriptions of the suspects. 
One is described as being in his mid-twenties, five feet seven, blue eyes, slightly hawkish nose, pimply face, stocky build with long, dark hair. The second is about 30 years old, five feet nine, average to medium build, with brown shoulder-length hair and long, red, bushy sideburns. Okay, so they're not hot. Um, <laughs> that's fine. They don't need to be. Still don't know who these kidnappers are, though. So this next article is actually not the Canberra Times. It is the Papua New Guinea Post-Courier. Oh, did we go global? Yes. Well, I'm assuming it was also a global story. It probably was reported yeah. around the world. Not just in Papua New Guinea. Don't you think it's funny how Australia always gets really super pumped by us being reported elsewhere? Like in the bushfires, it'll suddenly go, and we've made the news in the United States. Like As if that's the news. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Anyway, sorry. Stephen Colbert mentioned it. (gasps) (gasps) We're on CNN. Okay, Tuesday 10th of October 1972. Two men were charged last night with the kidnapping of a school teacher and her six pupils from a lonely country schoolhouse last Friday. The arrest of the two men, Robert Clyde Boland, 32, and Edwin John Eastwood, 21, in Dawn Police Raids on Monday, ended one of the most intensive manhunts in Australia in recent years. Boland was charged with kidnapping the seven with intent to demand ransom, while Eastwood was charged with abducting them with intent to gain for himself. I'm not really sure why they were charged with different things, but anyway... Both men were described as plasterers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of it's weird because you either are or yeah. you aren't. Yeah, turn a phrase. Yeah. yeah, it's not really just a description. The kidnappers demanded a one million ransom, but it was never collected. Early on Saturday, Miss Gibbs escaped. They were remanded without bail to appear in court again tomorrow. So this is great. Everyone's safe. The baddies have been caught. Hurrah! But then we get to sort of the aftermath of it. Um, Tuesday, 10th of October, 1972, school teacher collapses. Miss Mary Gibbs, the teacher heroine of the Faraday State School kidnap, collapsed at her home in Bendigo today and has been ordered to rest. I did not know this part of the story. My gosh, the poor woman. The district inspector of schools, Mr J Revel, told a meeting of parents in Faraday what happened finally caught up with her. It was delayed shock. Miss Gibbs was to have gone to Melbourne today to assist police in their inquiries, but a police officer said the visit was put off for a day. Mm, that's generous. Have 24 hours to get over it. Like people Not were... surprising, really. So she obviously got back from the kidnapping and then just immediately was helping the police. Mm. And a lot of adrenaline. Yeah. Totally. She yeah. would have had no, no time to really reflect on it at all. And depending on, like, who she lived with, did she have anyone to talk it over with? I think she might have lived, lived with, with her, her parents, parents yeah. in Bendigo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not sure. The Faraday parents today decided that the future of the school would depend on Miss Gibbs. If she was prepared to return, then the parents of its ten pupils wanted it to remain open. Blimey. That's nice. That's stressful, though. That's a big... It kind of is, <laughs> isn't it? Like... Mm-hmm. In a way, it could be seen as generous, we'll do whatever you want, but mm. then in another way mm. it's pressure because maybe you're making... Because it's going to be a very inconvenient change yeah. elsewhere. Although yeah. I'll keep going with the article. Mm. Mr Revel told the parents that as far as he knew, Miss Gibbs was prepared to come back and teach at the school, but it would be at least another month before she was ready. Oh, thank goodness they're giving her a month. Mm. The parents decided to close the school until the end of the year and in the meantime send their children to Harcourt State School. Good plan. Now, 
when I think of small schools, I think of them as being remote. Faraday's about six k's away from Harcourt. Like it's really not that far. Mm. And people did have cars. The school I went to, the primary school, quite a lot of kids were travelling at least six k's to get there. So I don't. I think sometimes the reason that there are the smaller schools is is if there's nearby schools. Do you know what I mean? So in some of the areas that there are still small schools, it's because there's another one a little bit further away that might actually split the enrolments. So some people will want to drive to that one mm. and other people really want the kids nearby, want them to be able to walk, all that right. sort of thing. So that's what I've noticed. It, it, often the reason there's a, a school with really small enrolments is because the other one's not that far. So for whatever reason, some people are choosing the super local one and some people have the potentially have the impression that the one that's a bit further away is a better school and or something like that. Right. Well, they don't want them to go to such a small school because some kids it's good yeah. for and other kids it's, yeah, totally. they need exactly. more people around. On the other hand then, like there's school sort of deserts, access to education for kids is tricky and I do think ideally you should be able to walk to school. Yeah, I mean that is definitely the ideal, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean you're at a P to 12, mm-hmm. so you must have kids coming in from... Well, no, we're really tightly zoned. Right. So we're on what they call an enrolment management plan. So every enrolment... Get it under control. Yeah, sort it out. <laughs> That's so Department of Education. I love it. All the edu babble. So our primary and secondary have different zones. And Are have, they different campuses? No, all on the same campus. Mm, what is pick up and drop off time like? Mm. I can't get my head yeah, around so it. Yeah, and go or whatever. So it's <laughs> 2,700 kids on one site. Oh so pick up wow. and drop off is hectic. It pretty much stops the suburb. <laughs> so, and I guess the reason that the zones are different is because there's heaps of feeder primary schools mm. as well. So it, uh-huh. it's a really tightly managed area and we're in a growth corridor where there's heaps and heaps of new schools popping up mm. so left, can, right and centre. Can many people walk and ride? A lot can walk and ride wow. um, to school and you'll often see kids that you think are really too small to be doing that journey by themselves <laughs> on foot and heading to school. But I guess they sort of get caught up in the wave of other kids. It's, it's not, like a spontaneous like walking really bus. Is. While some kids do catch a bus, they're not really catching it very far because they have to be so closely zoned. Mm. Right. Mm. That's, so, that's really interesting. Like you're thinking inner city schools will be bigger, but actually they're not No, because there's not enough room. Yeah, <laughs> like you no, literally just is, can't fit a 1,000 kids mm, in the one most school. part it is the outer suburban and growth corridor areas mm. that have the really big schools. Homicide detectives led by Superintendent LJ Patterson took a man to Faraday today to reenact Friday's kidnap. This was filmed and photographed. <sighs> Two of the children who were kidnapped were taken to the school in the afternoon to help detectives with their inquiries. Inside, a music sheet was still at the piano and the students' chairs were still in the position for the game of musical chairs they had been playing when the kidnappers entered the school. So those kids would have won. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just am thinking, wow, how is their PTSD triggered walking back in there? Yeah, so soon. Very trauma-informed. No, not at all. The current popular actually very effective approach in education. The Premier of Victoria, Mr Hamer, 
said today that the Victoria Police Force might select a special squad to deal with any future cases of kidnapping and attempted extortion. But they might not. Little bit of foreshadowing again, I feel. <laughs> We want to take all possible precautions to ensure that no one attempts this sort of kidnapping or extortion again, Mr Hamer said. The State Minister for Education, Mr Thompson, said that certain security precautions had been taken at Victoria's 431 teacher schools. Oh, oh, oh you're me, kidding. That's how many there were. Well, this is in one newspaper article and, as I say, I have done no outside research, so I can't confirm that it really was 430. No, it would have been. It's an amazing number to me. Just so isolating because I think one of the great things about teaching is that you collaborate with other people and it it is Mm. a really, I don't know, you make huge friendships in schools because you're all kind of in the trenches together, but you don't ever get that real sense of isolation. I I can't imagine. sometimes... Like, or if you're in the portable, you might. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think it depends a little school to school. Like mm. you can be feel isolated in a school or I work in an open plan school. The collaboration that happens in open plan when it works is mm. unbelievable. You're like, I remember someone saying to me, it's like a marriage. Yeah. You take a while to get in sync and then like if it changes year to year, you spend the first few months thinking, I miss so-and-so, it's just not the same with yeah. such and such and whatever. And then by like the middle of the year, you know every little detail of each other's lives. So I can't imagine not having that teacher buddy mm. in those single schoolhouses, but they also had to do all the ordering of everything as well as teaching Ugh. everything. And I also t- teach in a multi-age school. So basically... Like they probably had to clean the toilet. Yes, yeah. yes. They would have had to do a lot of that. I don't know if the kids might have helped, but anyway. But I know that working in a multi-age school is considered great training for working in a rural school because you have multi-age classes and definitely our mum, both my school principal and AP were, when I first started teaching at my school, were from single-room rural schools where they taught all year levels together so they were used to that. And so when I'd say it's just really hard sometimes trying to manage this gap, they'd be like, oh, get over it. (laughs) I had 13 kids, you know, and I had little Billy. He couldn't even walk yet and I had, you know, Jason, he had a beard. (laughs) So (laughs) it was quite a skill. Mm. Okay, so the next article that we've got is was from the 2nd of November, 1972. It's about a month later. and Mary gives out a bed. I just need to know if she's okay. She is okay. okay. She's definitely okay. The article is headlined, Teacher Not Going Back. Miss mm. yeah. Mary Gibbs, the 20-year-old school teacher, heroine of the Victoria kidnap last month, does not want to return to the school at Faraday. It's pretty full on, though, that she has to kind of announce this in the newspaper. It really should just be quietly dealt with. Yeah, and I guess there was just so much public interest Mm. in what she was going to do. I often hear people say, as teachers, that it's not the kids that are the problem in the job, it's the parents. Mm. Or is it the other teachers? Or is it the kidnappers? (laughs) (laughs) It depends. I think it's the bureaucracy is tricky. Like the amount of things you have to juggle. Yeah. I've been really lucky. I haven't had a lot of issues with parents over the years. And 
or other teachers, but just the amount of stuff that you're juggling is oh, – no one ever told me I was going to have to wash the art smocks. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you're dealing with like, you know, kids with really complex behaviour or really complex learning needs. You're collaborating with people. You're trying to work with the curriculum with all the new initiatives and then, then you turn around it's like – oh, well, I suppose I'm washing the art smocks as well, like, you know, or Mm. getting the cobwebs off the windows. Like the amount of physical cleaning that I have to do is unbelievable and it's just so draining and I'm just so sick of cleaning cobwebs and floors and surfaces, like stuff that the normal cleaners don't do because that's not in their award and fair enough. In fact, the other day I got so cross and I, I said, Somebody get that mandarin peel up off the ground. I don't understand. Someone's had their fruit snack and they've just dumped the mandarin on the ground and I actually didn't have my contact lenses in and there was a long pause and one of the little kids goes, it's a post-it note. (laughs) (laughs) But I was so fed up with cleaning and mess and logistics and stuff like that that I just kind of... That's funny. What about you, Christina? Look, I think it goes in roundabouts for me. It's very rarely the kids that I find, yes, they're draining at times and you get some real, really challenging behaviours and so on. I can deal with that if the family's on board, if the teachers are on board, no drama. Mm. We We can navigate that. But I think, you know, moving into leadership roles, there's no buffer. So if you hear a psycho parent in the foyer... You're like, oh, that'd be for me <laughs> because yeah. who else is coming in to deal with that? So I think for me after COVID, that's where people's oh. behaviours have gone really bizarre and I guess I feel like I've dealt with situations that I'd never dealt with before that time and I don't think that's just linked to the role that I'm in now. I think it people's behaviours have become a lot less um, measured and considered and That's definitely what the leadership at my school say. Mm. Sometimes to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> As I'm going, and I've just cleaned the storeroom again. There were clogs. Who left clogs in there? There's like five teachers. Some though. Dutch Someone exchange. Left. <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. Someone left clogs and I just lost it. I'm like, why are there clogs? I was just trying to put the Lego away. Um, yeah, I think that's true. And I feel like mm. one thing that if I reform, if I was able to reform a teaching degree, it would be to try to include more human psychology in it. Like you do a, you do a lot of child psychology if, if mm. you're lucky and you degree in a lot of child development, but I feel like there needs to be maybe a semester on like the psychology of the family, like how does yeah, what, what are family dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, and then on just generally, you know, how does bias work like in your brain? Mm. Like what are all mm. the theories around all that? Because so often you're dealing with people in, a, in an irrational state and that can be teachers yeah. as well, you know, like you're, you're managing staff in a highly emotional job where they're at the coalface with everyone's stuff and they're also trying to do all the, you know, stuff that you have to do. Now the bureaucratic stuff where, you know, you've got your AIP, your, mm. you know, the, the school plan and the mm. goals and the targets that you're trying to hit and all that stuff and, like, that stuff is really tricky for the leadership to manage but they also have to have their door open for me to come in and cry and say, <laughs> you know, this this there was clogs in the storeroom and <laughs> So I think just... And I think too it keeps popping up in the media and it's certainly something I've experienced and I know a lot of people do. Schools when they run well are sensational but there does tend to be an over-representation of very challenging workplace environment. There does tend to be a lot of schools and they keep popping up in the news where there is a real toxic culture and I 
I often ask myself, what is it about schools? And it's, I'm not saying it's unique to schools, but they do seem very much overrepresented. Well, um, ed- apparently the education department are one of WorkSafe's yep. biggest customers and it is mm. generally almost always psychological Absolutely. Injury. It's huge for WorkSafe, what they're dealing with. I wasn't aware of how much of a problem it was, to be honest, until my partner had a minor WorkSafe thing, just mm. like injured their arm using the guillotine slice. <laughs> I know, right? It was such a teacher injury. Um, my, my partner's hypermobile and it just, it was just the angle. She said it could have been anything. She could have been picking up a can of beans, but yeah. it happened to be the guillotine. And as we were sort, sorting it out and she... Because she, she did spend seven hours on the guillotine. <laughs> yeah. She was yeah. in the yeah. French Revolution. <laughs> she was, you know, slicing off her phonics, you know, flashcards or something and it just pinged. And when we spoke to a surgeon about it, you know, he mentioned the high level of work safe clients from teachers. Yeah, it is huge. Smaller class sizes would be nice. It would solve a lot of problems. (laughs) The school has been closed since Miss Gibbs and six of her pupils were kidnapped three weeks ago. Miss Gibbs said at her home in Bendigo that part of her reason for not wanting to return to the school was was the association it held with the kidnapping. But my main reason has nothing to do with that, she said. It's something personal that I am not going to talk about. Ooh. So we don't know. I just say, like, the same strength that allowed her to kick that door out is what is giving her the confidence, I assume, to sort of stand up for herself Mm -hmm. because with no debriefing and no real acknowledgement of what psychological impact it might have had on you, it would have been – you would have felt, I think, a lot of pressure to just keep calm and carry on. For her to be able to go, no, I don't want to be back there for whatever reason, good on her, I say – Absolutely. She said she was now on indefinite leave and she had seen her pupils only briefly since their rescue. The future of Faraday School now depends on a parents' meeting during the Christmas holidays. Since the kidnap, Faraday's 10 pupils have gone to Harcourt, as we know. Mrs Iris Howarth, whose children were among those taken from the Little Granite Block schoolroom, said she was not surprised when she was told Miss Gibbs did not want to return. <laughs> so mm. it sounds mm. like at least the parents were like, yeah, fair enough. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, their children might have been feeling really weird about returning as well. Totally. Well, exactly. They might quite be enjoying Harcourt and getting some nice apples. Mm. Getting to know some other kids. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from their sisters. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That does not mean, though, that she left the teaching profession because there was also this little snippet from the 21st of November, 1972, and it's titled Heroin Back. Whoa. The heroine of the Faraday School kidnapping, Miss Mary Gibbs, resumed teaching today at the Flora Hills State School at Bendigo. Good job. So that's really nice. Mm. And then the next thing that we have in the paper about her is... From the 3rd of January 1973, so early next year, former Faraday primary school teacher Miss Mary Gibbs, 20, little bit rude, heroine, heroine (laughs) Miss Mary Gibbs is her formal title now, it seems, (laughs) with her fiancé, Mr Neil, this is Mr Neil Wolker, but I believe he was Nolka, Neil Nolka, 21, an administrative officer from Strathfield, say, Shire, near Bendigo in Melbourne at the weekend, after their engagement was announced. Miss mm. Gibbs and six of her pupils were kidnapped in November. Oh. Do you no. think she'd be in the classroom? Miss like, Gibbs, can you tell us about the time that... Ma- 
I don't know. So this is the thing and this is where I feel for her that this is gonna follow she's her obviously everywhere. such a strong person, did such an amazing job hmm. and is sort of trying to move on but just everything is now going to be like she was the one who got kidnapped. Also, Which is what we're doing today as well, you know. Like I feel like generally speaking teachers, like if, if you're the kind of teacher who wants to work in that environment, you're not really out for the glory. You just want to close the door to the school and get on with your musical chairs. <laughs> you know, like I think that's a big part of the – well, for me, a big part of the appeal of teaching is you close the door and it's like the rest of the world doesn't exist. That's part of the magic of it is that it's just you and the kids and and the energy that you create together and it's just so – when it works, it's just such a brilliant feeling and that kind of external thing constantly coming in at her Mm. from the side could have been really frustrating. I don't know if that's – if that was her experience or not but if it was, it would have been a pain in the neck. I do sort of feel for her in that respect and from what I found looking into it – there's a recorded interview of her in the 1980s, yeah, which is in available in a library. And then after that, there's not really yeah. very much of her talking in the media or writing books or talk. She didn't seem to no. want to talk about it that much. There was a lovely photo of her and the education minister Lindsay Thompson in 2004, back at the schoolhouse, sort of like a. A reunion oh, wow. photo. Okay. So that was that was kind of nice. She was obviously happy to do that. She kind of moved on and continued with her career, I think. One thing I have been wondering is, so obviously we don't have so many of these one-room schools anymore, but what are the, what's the situation with small schools in Victoria well, now? I, I looked it up because I wasn't sure. It seems like there's less of them all the time. I read that in the, in the last five years, 10 of the small schools in regional Victoria had closed, including, now I don't know if I'm saying this right, Yapeet or Yapeet. Where's Yapeet? Uh, I don't know. But it was famously only had three students and they had oh, wow. they had um, lots of publicity and came to Melbourne and did lots of stuff. And then, then when I went to look it up, it was like no longer around. Oh, wow. But there are some, including some that aren't that far away, but none of them have only one teacher. No. That's what's interesting. Mm. No matter how few students, there's always two teachers mm. or more. All these schools have issues getting staff, keeping staff. Oh, I imagine there is a bit of pressure as well. Like I imagine it's not as cost effective as sending. No, it's not. Schools are grouped in mm. regions and then you have, I don't, I don't actually know, you would know better than me. I don't fully understand the hierarchy, but you have regional directors and then you have SEALs. Yes, and, and you, you ha- even have eels as well. Really? <laughs> right. Okay, <laughs> SEALs and eels. Yeah. Um, people All very water-based. Yeah, and it would be very tricky for someone who's a regional. Yeah. What well, a regional part- director will sort of oversee literally the entire region and then have multiple high-level people under them but I think it would be hard to justify keeping schools like that open and I think particularly with the current teaching crisis you know if if you're looking at a school with two or three teachers well if you can't staff that yeah what's the plan you know we we've got a staff of over 300 but we're 20 down so yeah yeah, there is it's better to pull people together probably at the moment but also each one of the rural schools now would be subject to the same, like they'd all have to have an annual implementation plan. They'd all yeah. have to have a school review. They'd all have to have a lot. And when lot, you're doing that for Yeah, for all these tiny little schools would be a lot of bureaucratic work and that is not stuff 
They weren't doing that in Mary Gibbs' day. No. Not to when that extent. Having, there were regional directors. Yeah. But, and, you mm. know, there were school inspectors and stuff like that. But it was nothing like the endless amounts of put a post-it note of what your goal is and, you know, like yeah, all that. Yeah, and doing the four-year review yeah. process. Yeah. Why would – what are you going to do? You're literally <laughs> going to grind that school to a halt because anyone who's there as an adult – would have to be involved in the review. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the other thing I noticed is none of these schools present themselves as though they're really small. So when you read their website, they have the same, we are an innovative, we believe yes. in challenging our values. One-on-one one devices. Yeah. That's right. No, exactly. Five. And actually I was like, but hang on a minute. And then I had to go and look on another website that mm. lists the enrolment numbers and I was like, 11? 11? Hang on, I think they've got all 11 of them in different photos, just like they've got them in different hats. (laughs) Yeah, hat, Barry. Yeah, yeah. Someone's quick, quick, put your hair up, put your hair down. Yeah. Yeah. Sit in a wheelchair. We need to look diverse. (laughs) I think that's really odd because to me I imagine that for some parents is the selling point. It is. And when you read all the articles in the paper, a parent saying we wanted our kids to go to the local school because it was small but now they've closed it down. Like that's a story everywhere. But there's what? the school is presenting is we're just a normal school like that other one I'm definitely guilty of having romantic thoughts of moving to the country with my partner and the two of us transforming some local school and turning it into you know whatever but in reality it would just probably be me crying because I haven't filled in the paperwork so there's no pencils or anything basic and um ha- and my partner having to mow the lawn because like they've you know if there was lawn yeah. probably just a big dust bowl because it's asking drought. kids who's on chook duty yeah yeah totally and both of us getting chased out of town by angry parents because we've brought a woke agenda to some yeah. you know yeah. So, look, I think if I was going to summarize it teachers in general are amazing Mary Gibbs was even more amazing, yeah, maybe, incredible. or or maybe we don't know what any of us would do if until we're in the situation. Well, bring the tape recorder, keep singing for God's sake. These are the and lessons. the kids and said, wear your platform boots. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this, Anna Grace, and for bringing in your teacher knowledge and no everything. Worries. Thank you for doing research. <laughs> That's what I do. Hello, Penny here. Because we were talking about the Faraday kidnappings and my family comes from that district, I put a little message in the family group chat just saying, hey, does anyone know of any personal connections to the events at Faraday? And I got a reply from my dad who said, and my mum, mentioned that they knew someone who had been one of the kids kidnapped and also that dad knew Mary Gibbs and that he had in fact worked with her because her dad used to be an assistant principal, just like Christina. And I had absolutely no idea about this. I had only ever, as I said in the podcast, heard about the Faraday kidnappings in passing. My parents mentioned it when we drove past the school or the site of the old school, but they never said that they knew anyone who was there and they never spoke in detail about the event. So I was very surprised by this. And so, of course, that meant that I had a couple of questions for Dad. He's in Queensland at the moment, so I thought I'd just get him on the blower. G'day, Pen. Hi, Dad. How are you? Yep, we're ready to go. All right. How's Queensland, Dad? Yeah, Queensland's really good. Beautiful sunny day today. 
So I was hoping to ask you about, since we had a little chat the other day, because I didn't realise that you actually knew the hero of the story of the Faraday school kidnappings, Mary Gibbs. Yes. So how did you know Mary Gibbs? I met Mary at uh, Maryborough Regional College, where she was the Lawton Compassion Mallee Region Education Region Psychologist. Oh, so she became a psychologist. Yes, she did. That's so interesting, isn't it, given her experiences? That, yes, yes. And uh, she was a brilliant, brilliant operator. Like with helping kids and things? With helping kids and the way she went about it. Uh, she had a capacity to uh, get people on side. She made sure that people did what they should do. Definitely from when we went through all the articles and heard the stories about her, like she obviously, as even as a really young person, was just incredibly competent and kept her head under pressure. Her competency would never be doubted. She really led the welfare team at the school and which there were some very, very good operators as well, like Ray Orton and Janice Field. And she made sure that us people in the principal class were on the case because this was the most important part of what the school was doing. Was she kind of keeping you guys in order a little bit as well? Of course she was. You know, she, it was unsaid, but Mary... uh, didn't take no for an answer and said, well, this has got to happen, so it happens. That's the way it goes. It's pretty pretty tough. Oh, look, look tough is a, oh, it's a bad word to use on a person. She, she was strong-willed, yes, but very, very determined to get an outcome that was in the benefit of the students. Because I think everyone knows about her from this one incident that happened when she was very, very young, but it sounds like all those qualities that she demonstrated there, she just took on throughout the rest of her career, which was oh, kind look, of out of the public eye, but obviously very impactful. Look, she uh, was just a fantastic operator. She uh, set out to really make a difference for, for young people who are in strife. She was also a psychologist for the staff as well. You know, she looked after all of us, and with probably with the name in the end that the, the staff looked after, uh, that the kids had been looked after. But if, if staff weren't doing the right thing, or if parents weren't doing the right thing, she was the first one to really tell them. It's so interesting to hear about a completely different side of her life, having read about her as, as kind of, you know, she comes across as such a heroine. It's She sounds almost like a, a story character, when you read all the articles about her, but she was like a real person who you knew. And do you remember when the Faraday kidnappings happened? How old were you? You would have been. In um, my second year at university, it was, you know, it was very serious business. It's amazing how this young teacher kicked away out of a van to, to get the kids to escape. So as um, student teachers, was it something that you thought about? I mean, you obviously didn't go to teach in one of these small schools, but was it something that was discussed? No, it wasn't anything that was really thought about. You know, it was... And then later on, you know, the, in reflection, how could a 20-year-old woman be left in charge of a school in the middle of nowhere where nobody knew what was going on? 
In retrospect, it seemed. It, but it was so common and everyone was doing it. Well, it was going on since primary schools were invented in Victoria. Yeah. Little tiny country places. Here they are. There's, there's no uh, lesson preparation time. You're it. You're doing everything. And you're on yard duty too, all day. Obviously, I reckon it was a very famous story in Australia-wide, but particularly in the district. So did most people know Mary Gibbs' part in it, who knew her later? Well, it was almost like if you might be living with a like a new teacher might come to the school and there's Mary Gibbs or the first thing that's whispered is she was a teacher at Faraday. Mary never ever talked about it. So she never um, raised it with you? You never discussed it? Never. Um, because it was sort of, that was her private life in a sense. Yeah. And, and everything had changed, you know, things had moved on. And she was doing a, di- a different job. Like, she was still working in schools, but she... Oh, yeah. But she never mentioned it or raised it. And I think most of us thought, well, that's an era past. She may not want to remember it or talk about it. I actually think that Mary Gibbs thought she didn't do anything really spectacular. <laughs> that's just everybody else did. Yeah, well, the thing is, we none of us. I feel like none of us know what we would do until we're in the situation, and she just knows that she did a good oh. job. But yeah, oh, look under pressure, fantastic, and I think I might have said that uh, she finished up. I think having a very uh, personal relationship with the uh, education minister of the time over a number of years. She was grateful the way he handled it. Yeah, but he was more than grateful about the way she handled it. Yeah, he was very admiring of what she did. Lindsay Thompson, he has a connection to the local area too, doesn't he? Well, his mother used to live near the Castlemaine High School and I can remember going to see her when I was in year 11 or 12. So that's three or four years before this event occurred. Were you visiting as a sort of a community activity? The school used to visit little Christmas things and stuff like that. I can't remember exactly, but I know that I went to Mrs Thompson's place and she was the mum of the education minister. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at the end of every episode that we do of this show, Dad, we should just call you up and go, all right, so how do you know all these people? Oh, Oh, not really, because... I suppose it was the fair. I mean, I was aware of it being in the district, so I thought there was some chance that you would know someone involved. And that's the thing. You never mentioned it to us. You never said, oh, I know this person, she did all this stuff. You didn't, you know, you didn't make a big deal of it. At the time, I knew that Mary Gibbs was very special because she was doing a fantastic job at the school. Student welfare was a particular bent of mine too. And, of course, you might know that Mirabara socioeconomically is a little bit downtrodden and there was plenty of work and Mary Gibbs was in there and I might say boots and all. <laughs> Did she keep wearing the boots? Did she ever wear the big boots? I don't think I don't think. They wouldn't, have, I, they wouldn't have been as in fashion either by the time you knew her. No. You know, she just. 
dressed like everybody else dressed. <laughs> and did you stay in touch? When was the last time you saw her after you left Maribara? When I left Maribara, I hadn't seen Mary Gibbs since, except one day that a friend knew um, a lady whose daughter was riding track work at Benio Racetrack, and she got on a horse that flew, and it hadn't had a start. Wow. And they started it uh, in a big race at Benigo. The rumour had got around Benigo that it was pretty good. But another friend of mine and I decided to go to the races. And normally we wouldn't go at all. Who do I run into straight away is Mary Gibbs. Mary Gibbs, very pleased to sail home. Uh, always on the welfare issue again, saying, to me, which I'm ashamed of, you haven't given up smoking yet, have you? <laughs> and she used to say to me every time she saw me, you know, school every day, give up smoking. Why don't you give up smoking? <laughs> but anyway, we had this tip for this horse and Mary introduced me to her partner at the time. Seemed a lovely chap. I don't think Mary was an avid race girl, but they decided to go to the races yeah. and do something. I said, look, there's a horse that we come to back that we think, if the message is right, that it'll win. So anyway, off she went with her partner, and I went off and backed the horse too, 10 to 1, which is good odds, you know, for all those to go pretty well. The race started, and our horse went to the front. And do you know where it finished? I'm going to hope at the front. Four lengths in front. Never, ever ever look like losing. And who do we I see straight after the the race but Mary Gibbs with the biggest smile I've ever seen in her face. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) She would have falsely got the impression that uh, a guru on the race. Had all the tits. Oh, that's so great. Definitely not. And... The other interesting thing about it, I do remember the name of the horse. Yes. Um, because I think someone may have told me that uh, when the kidnapping was on, that the children were playing musical chairs. They were, yes. They were, were they? Yeah, definitely. Well, but the horse's name that I told Mary was the Big Dance. <laughs> I know you're uh, not a big football follower, but... Colloquially, the big dance is the grand final. Ah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you think about Mary Gibbs, the big dance that she did with those kids. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing too. Such a uh, an experience. Whether Mary ever suffered from post, what do you call it? Post PTSD, post traumatic. Yeah, she would have every reason to mm. suffer from that. I hope she never did. But she she really just got on with her life and bad helping people. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk to you at the end because I think probably there is a tendency for people to focus on that and probably, you know, maybe she'd even prefer we weren't talking about her at all. But uh, I did just want to emphasise that other part of her life that this thing happened to her, but she, she did other things. She never let it define her. She never went out to uh, get glory or anything like that from it. I don't think she saw herself as the hero, but uh, the rest of the world did. 
you know, there's not many people who uh, have, a, have an incident in their life where they have to stand up and do something that we don't know whether we'd be able to do. She did a great job. Yeah. She was a teacher throughout. 